I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. There is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. For any new listeners, we are 10 football-loving lady friends who gather weekly here in the Outer to discuss the social, the stupid and the sublime around footy, the game that we love. My name is Emma Race and it gives me great pleasure to be selling the hot pies and my football-loving Sanctum sisters are here to sell the cold drinks. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hello, it's Lucy Race <laughs> and Rana Hussain and Kate Sear. Can I get you all to do a hot pies, cold drinks, and I'm going to decide who's the best. Lucy, you go first. Hot pies, cold drinks. Mm. Sorry, my voice got croaky then. Fired. <laughs> I better go home. Okay. What about Rana? Hot pies, cold drinks. Oh, she's already in first place. Hot pies, <laughs> cold drinks. Thanks, Celine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think everyone knows that the numbers are with Rana on that one. <laughs> Clear winner. I'm definitely buying oh. what she's selling. How are you all? Rana and I just danced to yeah. the uh, to the intro and we're, we're feeling, voguing, we're feeling pumped. Yeah, we did I a bit of I don't know if it was voguing. I thought it Come was on. the old Vogue. robot dance. It was oh. a galactic. It was sort of exploratory. It combined different styles. Yeah. It was it was yeah. good. If you've ever seen David Brent dance, it was a little <laughs> bit like that. Yes. It was a bit of a mashup. I'm not well. I've put my back out doing a burpee. If you're over 45 years, old, don't do them. That's what they say. I didn't listen. Anyway, I was very pleased, I have to say, just talking a little bit of footy. When Hawthorne played the Tigers last week, uh, now you're a little outnumbered, our Tiger friend. I'm feeling very vulnerable right now. Normally I would have Tess around as well, but she is not here because she's bedridden. <laughs> she's in the lockbox. <laughs> she is. So I'm feeling a little bit um, on my own here. It wasn't a great night. It was surprising. It was definitely surprising, although I have a bit of a, I mean, I guess people have been saying this. My read is this team is just thrives. In fact, their secret source is connection and the culture that they've built. That is their MO. So take that away. I mean, ugh. We saw it, didn't we? Do you think it's dusty? No, I actually don't think it's dusty. Hmm. I, You know, there's an argument for that. But I, I think that this team are very – the way they play is together and with connection and they have a routine around building that feeling mm. and that is what they bring into every game with them. And so you take that away. It's like the thing that was their strength is now their kryptonite. You don't oh. think it's the midnight curse playing on <laughs> Thursday night? It's right. hard to get your energy up on a Thursday night, isn't it? it? Is. Especially it if you've got to put the recycling out <laughs> and if it's green waste as well. That's, that's that weekend. So that's just for uni night. 
Do we know it? No. But yeah, you know I what know then? You, know. you look to Saturday. Saturday wasn't been night. It's not been night anywhere. And somehow the Blues go to the bowling alley down at Cardinia Park <sighs> that- and somehow pull off one of the most cunning <laughs> stunts I have ever seen. What is time to be a Hawks fan? You did well with that. I did well with that, didn't I? Look, for me, it was my highlight of the round. I have two highlights of the round. One is a bit what you're talking about, Rana, is the unpredictability of the competition. I know we're only, you know, a few rounds in and it's been very disrupted, but teams that I don't expect to be to see winning like the Gold Coast and Carlton, Port Adelaide, you know, playing well. And I actually really enjoy the unpredictability of what's happening uh, and seeing seeing teams that, you know, haven't done well in recent years going well. But for me, the absolute highlight of the round was Carlton's win and um, particularly those final moments. I know we've all heard them a million times. They've been replayed all week, but I don't think we can hear them enough. That final passage of play, Eddie Betts in particular, just sensational. Let's have a listen back to it now. Nunes takes a bit off the kick and Eddie Bits takes the mark in the right forward pocket. And that's just about the ball game. In fact, it is. Outfitting Eddie Betts has the ball in his hand and the Blues will win for the first time in 2020. Oh, it was so fitting. I was just cheering it over at my place. And a lot of my friends and relatives go for Carlton and it was so joyful for them to see Carlton doing well. But particularly Eddie Betts, who'd had a really tough week and had experienced racial vilification yet again the week before. Um, I was actually beside myself to see that final play and to see the ball finish in his hands. Lucy? That was just, that was a great highlight, Kate. And I'm going to go north for my highlight and talk about the fact that Queensland football is on fire. I saw a tweet saying that they should rename the Gold Coast home base as the House of the Rising Suns, which I think is so clever. That was followed up with Connor Buderick winning the Rising star for this week for the Suns. So he came up through there. He was a rookie that was elevated this year. The thing that I loved seeing was, again, Matt Rao played a blinder. Rao watch. Rao watch. But he tucks his shirt in and it reminds (laughs) me of somebody else. Daisy Pierce. Daisy (laughs) Pierce. I just think if there aren't a whole pack of juniors running around with their shirts tucked in, then they're missing out on just that extra little, you know, it's maybe the one percenters. There's calls now for the Suns to play a Friday night game. And I think, you know, this flexible fixture gives the opportunity for that to happen. But um, on the other side of the ledger, the Crows were stinky. Mm. I've been enjoying Stewie Jew and Chris Fagan battling it out for Coach of the Year. Is that just an amazing turnaround to think of where they've both come from? Obviously, I have some Hawthorne love for them that spills over, but there were some beautiful images of Chris Fagan with a big smile on his face, happy with his Lions. I just think it's good for football when we've got – I like seeing those guys succeed. Katie? And you saying that, Em, makes me wonder, are we going to see an all-Queensland grand final? (laughs) I mean, I'm going very early, granted, I'm going very like early. But imagine it, happen. Gold Coast versus Brisbane. How incredible would that be for, for, for football in Queensland? It would be massive. There was one huge omission this weekend, and that was the Demons and the Dons did not get to play mm. because Connor McKenna returned a positive test. He plays for Essendon, a positive COVID test, I should say. And then the game was postponed and then he returned some other tests. They were not positive. They were negative. And this week his test has been the talk of the town and all of the Essendon players who had trained with him had to also get tested and we saw images of Essendon getting a full hosing down, um, a full and thorough clean. And testing plays such a big part in the AFL's getting back to play policy and we wondered where does it leave us? We joked a few weeks ago 
that we may have to cross to Norman Swan on the boundary. We could think of no better time to make that dream a reality. Norman, are you there? I am. I am there running up and down <laughs> furiously, waving my arms, not knowing the rules. But we'll see how we go. Dr Norman Swan, we are so pleased to have you here on the Outer Sanctum. You, of course, have your own ABC hit podcast, Coronacast, which we've all been enjoying. Yeah. Did you ever consider a career as a boundary commentator? Look, I didn't. And I have to say that when my son was playing footy um, and I was on the boundary, he said, Dad, just don't open your mouth once. <laughs> That's a bit mean. Yeah, because he knew that if I my mouth, it would be declared how ignorant I am. <laughs> anyway. Well, thank you for joining us. It's Lucy here, Norman. And hi, um, hi. I guess the big question, because we've been watching what's been happening with the player from Essendon, is really around testing. And I don't know if you're able to explain to us how tests can come back as negative, positive, then negative again in the space of a few days. Is this something that we know about? Yeah, anybody watching football would know that you know the umpire is not necessarily accurate and you've got to, you know, You've got to take the the screen picture to see what's going on. And testing is probably even less accurate sometimes than umpiring. You think it's it's going to be accurate. The problem here is that these tests were introduced very quickly, understandably. Nobody made any mistakes. And they're actually quite good tests. Any test that you get done has inaccuracy built into it. So if you get your cholesterol done, and let's say it comes back as 5, it's a pretty accurate test, but it could be anywhere between you know, maybe 4.5 and 5.5. There's an error. It's probably narrower than that, but there's an error in every, in every test. You've got to watch out for that. Now, in In tests like this one where you're looking for a virus or fragments of genetic material of the virus, things can go wrong and multiple things can go wrong with it being still a pretty good test. So, for example, the person sticking the swab into the nose might not be properly trained or if they are, they're having a bad morning and they don't wriggle it around much. You you might have somebody who's pretty sensitive in the nose and they're pulling their head back and you don't get a great sample. The transport medium that you put into might not be working well that day and the test itself relies on getting a decent amount of viral material onto the swab itself. So let's assume that everything's perfect. You've taken a great swab, gone into the medium, it's got to the lab, everything's great. But depending on where you are at in your um, infectious cycle, if you like, of the virus, let's assume you are infected, um, you may not have very much virus on board. So the, the research suggests, for example, let's imagine we all got infected yesterday and we came in contact with a football player yesterday and we're going to get tested today because he now is positive. Almost all of us would come back negative today, even though we're, we, let's imagine we've all been, we've all got the virus. And the reason we're negative is that we haven't got, the virus hasn't grown enough in our body to be picked up on the test. So that's a hundred, it's called a false negative. So we're actually positive, but we're showing up negative. Then as each day goes by, the false negative rate drops so that you're more likely to be truly tested positive. And about day eight is where you really hit the sweet spot. You are maximally likely to be shown positive if you are. But even then, one in five people will show up negative. So it's a, it's a recognised problem with the test. So it means, for example, let's say, for example, you've got loss of taste or loss of smell and you're feeling a little lousy, fatigued and what have you. You've got COVID-19, you've got COVID-19 until proven otherwise. And if you come up negative, you've just got to keep on getting tested because it's likely that you're going to be positive. So that's the false negative rate. And it's unfortunate, but it's why people do repeat tests because you just can't be sure. So now we haven't done 
too badly with that. We've managed to control this epidemic using these tests with these flaws within them. So it's not terrible news, but when you get the individual stories coming up <coughs> of people getting variable test results. Now, that's false negatives. So that's where you've got the infection, but the test comes up negative. And now, the situation here with the Essendon player is you know, some doubt about the positive result because it seems to be testing negative. False positives, where you come up positive, but you're actually don't have the virus, they are much rarer, very rare indeed. And nobody's quite sure what the percentage is, but it's probably under 5%. But, you know, nobody's too sure. I shouldn't quote a number, I should say. So why would you get a false positive? Well, there could be contamination in the lab, could be contamination from the person taking the swab, but we don't have enough coronavirus around really probably for that to happen. You know, you can imagine if you're in Texas or Florida and there's a, you know, one in five people coming forward for testing a positive, you, if the person doing the testing is careless, they, they cross-contaminate. So that's mm. a possibility, but not here. And the other reason is that there are common cold viruses around, which are coronaviruses, cousins of the COVID-19 virus, and you may get cross-reactivity on the test from those viruses. They're not supposed to, but maybe that happens. But nobody's too sure why you get false positives. Just on that, we want certainty in a time like this, but the science is still emerging. So how do we manage the tension between an emerging science and our need for certainty? You manage it by taking, it's called the the precautionary principle, that you just, you actually act as though you might be positive. That is the safest thing to do in this pandemic. The riskiest thing to do is to go out there and think there's no problem and say, stuff the tests, they're useless, and I'm going to go on. The tests aren't useless. They've just got a problem. You've got to understand what those problems are. So for example, the school system in Victoria, if you're child is has got cold symptoms you keep your child at home you should get the child tested and even if you come back negative on the test you should stay at home until the cold goes away and the reason they're saying that is first of all you don't want to spread viruses of any kind but secondly it still could be COVID-19 and it's a false negative test so you really want to let the symptoms go away and the chances of transmitting the virus being less. Norman, it's Kate here. Speaking about the precautionary principle, one of the big precautions sporting organisations have taken is having no crowds at games, but Western Australia have just announced that they would like to see uh, as many as 30,000 people in the stands in the next little while. What are your thoughts on that? West Australia is different from Victoria and New South Wales. So Western Australia has no virus. Pretty confidently saying, I mean, the virus that they've got is coming in from overseas. There's no circulating virus. They've had zero cases now for quite some time. And as long as they keep their borders shut, they can go back to normal. The problem that West Australia's got is that they can't keep their internal borders shut forever. And as soon as they lift up, then they're running the risk of more virus coming in. And then they're going to have to reteach the population how to socially distance. But when you've got no virus around, or effectively no virus around, you can go back to virtually normal. That's why people like me were advocating six or eight weeks ago for an eradication program in Australia, not suppression. And what we've gone for, unfortunately, is suppression. And when you've gone for suppression, this is what you get. You don't eliminate the virus. So, Norman, given all of that, I'm wondering, when do you think is the earliest we might see uh, fans return to stadiums in Victoria or New South Wales for, for AFL? I actually think fans could return very quickly if we got over this aversion that they've got at national level to masks. It completely flummoxes me as to why they are not recommending masks in places where you you know you really can't socially distance. The problem with a footy match is even if you socially distance and you've got somebody sitting every two or three seats, that's fine for really close contact in short spurts. And by the way, outdoors is much less risky than indoors. But you, you've got a lot of fans 
and people are shouting and yelling. And if you've got people with COVID-19, that COVID-19 shoots out and can go up to eight metres and linger. You know, if it's a very silent day, no wind, linger in the air for quite some time. Now, outdoor transmission is rare, but it could happen, even with socially dis- social distancing. If you wore masks, you can cut down that aerosol spread by 60 or 70%. The World Health Organization recommends that, albeit that the World Health Organization's advice is tailored according to the amount of coronavirus you've got in your country. But I don't know, what is this? We're opening up cinemas with no masks. I'm not going to go to the cinema, you know, in South Yarra or wherever without a mask on, without other people having masks on. You could actually have a full cinema on you know, with no social distancing and people wearing masks and you're probably going to be okay. Masks could allow the economy to open up and could be just what Victoria needs to get over this hump. You know, a month of masks where you're going to get on a tram, you've got to wear a mask. Going on a train, you've got to wear a mask. Want to go into um, a shopping centre, got to wear a mask. You know, And it probably Melbourne wide because you don't just sit in Darabin, you, you travel, you work in the city. People move around a lot. It's um, true. I'm from Darabin and no one wants to talk to me, but you talked about the economy. Are you sure that's just because you're from Darabin? I mean, really, get over it. <laughs> the economy could get kick-started if we wore masks. And not only that, but you've just given me the best idea, Norman. Why aren't we having footy merch masks? In, wear them in your favourite team colours. That's right. And you could even have the player you most hate in the other team you know, on the mask as well and you shut your, <laughs> and you shut your mouth and then crumple up in front of you. We need to get you in for a mind map on some merchandise ideas that will keep well, us all safe, I reckon. We heard it here first. The Outer Sanctum's got the IP and we should get a cent for every mask sold. We cannot wait to see you um, take your boundary riding to the next level, Norman. Thank you so much for joining us on the Outer Sanctum. One final question. Do you go for the swans? I've got to, haven't I? <laughs> you do. Dr Norman And I've only just recently stopped calling them South Melbourne, but anyway. <laughs> That's OK. You can call them South. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Dr Norman Swan, and we can all catch your pearls of wisdom on the Corona Cast, a daily podcast that is available from the ABC Listen app or from where you get your podcasts. Have a great day. Thanks very much, Norman, and stay safe. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. I'm Sabrina Frederick, and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. All right, are we ready to roll up our sleeves? And Malay ladies, in the wake of Conor McKenna's test, there's been some conversations about player privacy and medical records being discussed in the public domain. I'm going to turn to my lawyer friend, Dr Kate Sear, and ask you, Kate, should we know all of this information that is personal about players? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, actually. And, I mean, obviously it has been a, a huge talking point in the last couple of days. I saw that James Sicily from Hawthorne tweeted about this last night and he said in the wake of Conor McKenna's negative test, uh, I'd love to see some accountability from the media, no concern for welfare or privacy, and I'd hope a few apologies are in order. Appalling uh, is what he said. I thought I might just take you through a little bit about how this whole process works from a private privacy and legal perspective just to just to situate it and then we can have a chat about what it means within a footy context. So the first thing to say is that every state and territory in Australia has specific legislation that governs public health and wellbeing matters and in Victoria where McKenna is based we have a law called the Public Health and Wellbeing Act which is the main law that details everything to do with public health and part of what that law does is sets up a, a framework or a, a series of mechanisms for situations where people test positive 
sensitive to various various conditions, viruses and so on. And there's a whole list of them in, in the law. So if you go to the doctor and you test positive for um, hepatitis or HIV or Ebola or um, Campylobacter, which is the bacteria that you get when you get salmonella poisoning, there's a whole list of them. Uh, there's a process by which your doctor then has to notify the Department of Health. And one of the reasons why those various conditions need to be notified to the government is because some of them are contagious and the government wants to know who has acquired them and do some sort of processes like contract tracing. So actually, despite the fact that I'm a vegetarian, believe it or not, I have myself um, had Campylobacter in the past. I've gotten salmonella poisoning somehow and, and my doctor notifies the Department of Health or notified the Department of Health when that happens. And what they're looking for there is to see whether a bunch of people perhaps who went to a restaurant, say, the day before, might have all got salmonella poisoning, in which case it suggests maybe that there's a salmonella outbreak. Some of those notifications to the department in a way that maintains your privacy, so you're not identified by name, but for some conditions, and COVID-19 is one of them, you do have to be notified by name. So you are identifiable and that way then the government can reach out to you and, and do contract tracing. Connor McKenna, when he tested positive, his information will have been sent to the Department of Health and Human Services, which is absolutely standard under that process. But then the question becomes, by what mechanism or process did his name and information become public? Now, I don't know why or how that happened. I think it's possible that he consented to his name being made public. Uh, as I said, I'm not sure either way. But where this becomes really difficult in a football context is when you have one person test positive and the AFL has all of these protocols in place now to, to stop games as we as we saw on uh, Saturday or Sunday when Gil McLaughlin announced that the game would be stopped. It's very difficult, I think, to maintain player privacy in that context because we need to know that someone from a club has tested positive. And if Essendon were to go ahead and play against Melbourne this week and Connor McKenna was still positive and not going to play, how would they protect his privacy without giving away that he was the person who tested positive to COVID? Are they going to say that he was omitted from because of a hamstring or general soreness or sickness or whatever it might be. And this is where it becomes really hard, I think, for that player privacy to be maintained. The other thing I just want to say is that one reason why this matters so much, this process, and why it's such a controversial situation is because of the stigma that's attached to this particular condition. We have seen heaps of media this week that's been critical of Connor McKenna. We saw you know, Snotgate last week, the, the, the vision. Snot cam. Snot cam. Vision of him blowing snot out of his nose on the, on the pitch and so on and lots of speculation about whether he was reckless in some way and perhaps had put other players at risk and all of that media speculation that was then generated is hugely problematic because of, as we know, the stigma that's associated. And we know we have been hearing reports from around the world from people who have tested positive to COVID and now recovered talking about how difficult it is for them to sort of smoothly integrate back into the community. You know, friends and family don't want to see them or think of them as contagious or contaminated. The kinds of, frankly, highly stigmatised practices we've seen from other, for other viruses in the past. People with HIV spring to mind, uh, particularly throughout the 80s, people with hepatitis C. So that's why these discussions matter a lot. And I think we need to look back on and reflect on this incident and think about what could be done better. And I think the media in particular has a lot to answer for. It was interesting when we saw the message come through that at four o'clock, Gil McLaughlin, CEO, was going to make an announcement, but um, already the information had been released and it was already being talked about. I did put to the group, and we have an ongoing group chat, Gil McLaughlin's about to announce something at the G and some suggestions from the group included that they were going to 
to announce that Chicken Salt was a new sponsor <laughs> of the AFL. I think Rana suggested that Gil was going to read all of the Brownlow votes in a kilt. Yep. Uh, <laughs> with a Scottish accent. With a Scottish accent. Um, there were some other suggestions. Shelley Ware was the new CEO of the AFL that he was handing over the baton. <laughs> to her, that's right. And it just reminded me that, <laughs> that the group chat ongoing is always ridiculous, even in the eye it's of... one of the joys of being part of this team, isn't it? <laughs> of a public health scare. Lucy? One of the things that I think makes this more problematic is that when the media speculation you know, it's really around somebody's personal information and then there becomes a whole conversation about, well, what did they do wrong? There's a whole lot of blaming that goes on with yep. this. And what we do know about this virus is it is we don't know everything and also it's really contagious and it's really tricky. So blame is not very useful. But on the other side of the ledger, if you don't have, if you don't come to these stories with an absolute focus on the fact that we are talking about a person mm. here and thinking about what the impact for him on his physical and mental health could be in that moment, then I think sometimes you can kind of get caught up in the, well, what does this mean for the competition? And and really, you know, putting concerns about fixturing and all of those things ahead in the list of priorities ahead of Connor McKenna's health. Catherine Murphy, I think, has been really one of the only journalists to really focus in on how is Connor doing? Is he okay? And it's been lovely to hear that the club has really stepped up to look after him. You're so right about the stigma stuff too, because I feel it because I live in a hot spot. I'm in Moreland. And so I feel a little bit embarrassed to be out and about sometimes and wondering, should I just be not going anywhere? I think if you're wearing your tiger's mask, <laughs> I think you'll be fine. <laughs> and I will be wearing my Agreed. hawk's mask because I also live on the north side of the river. We'll just catch up together. We were talking about player safety and there was something, an initiative or a partnership that was announced this week, Lucy, about online safety and what the AFL will be doing to promote safety for all people online. And uh, we saw some tweets saying that it's to protect people from racism, gendered slurs and transphobia and homophobic slurs as well. That's correct. So last week, the AFL and Australia's eSafety Commissioner announced that they're going to be joining forces to tackle what is a really important issue of, you know, the issue of online safety and this particularly within the AFL community. The new social campaign is hashtag PlayFairOnline and Tanya Hosh was quoted at the launch of this saying, sadly racism is targeting our players all too frequently and we need to do all we can to try and eradicate this from our game. We are committed to ensure our players, staff, fans and footy families can feel safe in the AFL environment and that includes online platforms. As you said Em, Tanya went on to assure fans that this campaign includes all forms of online abuse as well as racism. And there's a bunch of resources that are available on the AFL website. There is a link to the esafety.gov.au website that has a comprehensive suite of online safety advice and resources. But it's, you know, it's a big conversation and we did see our dear Eddie Betts speak last night on AFL 360 and talk about the personal impact of dealing with racism as he plays the sport that he loves. And I think we all came away from that conversation wiser about the toll that that takes personally. I think we could see just how tiring and how wearing that is for him. It's great that we're having this conversation. I wonder what your thoughts are. I thought it was interesting that the last couple of days we've seen Joel Wilkinson and also Heretia Lamamba have been speaking out and more information is coming to hand about their experiences. And it feels, I wonder, I remember 
during the Indigenous All-Stars camp in 2019, reading some things that came out of that, that the Indigenous players had made a pact really with each other to say, we won't stand for this anymore and we will work together as a team to make sure we all back Mm. each other up. And I feel like that's maybe something that we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's almost a reclaiming of the space, of the AFL space for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players and really standing together. The thing that I, and to just reiterate what you said, Lucy, the thing that really came out strongly to me was how tired Eddie was feeling. And that's the thing that I think people don't know about when you experience racism, that it's in the moment and then it's the aftermath and then it's talking about it and having to explain and then within that explain your identity and carry all of that and then do the teaching and then Mm. sit with your own feelings alongside all of that like it just and that's one instance so if you're Eddie Betts and you've had that time and time again it actually hinders your ability to function that he's so remarkable on field despite all that Mm. is just incredible to me. He alluded to the barriers and the and the additional hurdles he has to face to get to work every day to perform like that. And I wonder, is that your experience through Rana, that you feel you walk out the door and you have to put on an armour that us white girls don't have to do? Yeah, I, I do feel like that. I think you brace for things. Like you walk into a room bracing for a reaction to the way you look even. Now, I'm not Indigenous and I don't have the experiences that a lot of Indigenous people do have and the intergenerational trauma and dispossession. But as a woman who is brown with a hijab on, when I walk into a room, I am bracing for negative responses. And it's just become a learned thing for me. But on public transport, you know, at the supermarket, I'm expecting people to underestimate me. One of the things that really struck me listening to Eddie last night was, you know, the toll that it takes to have to talk about stuff that's really very personal and very hurtful. And we're having conversations about how it can't always be up to people in minority groups to keep sharing their trauma as a way for us all to understand what the systemic racism and systemic biases, I guess, that people are facing. So I always want to try and sort of further the conversation and think about what we can be doing, I guess, as allies, but also what sort of changes we can be making. Because if we're going to just rely on people telling their trauma as a way for people to gain empathy, that's not sustainable, is it? No, and it's it's tricky because last night Robbo asked Eddie to take us into the experience, which is powerful and does kind of, I guess, that empathy helps people shift from their point of view. But yeah, how do we do that without re-traumatising? We saw an announcement by Collingwood that they're going to have an internal review on the Heretia allegations and conversation. I wonder if that is re-traumatising. Kate, is that a legal binding investigation or is it is it is an investigation just asking people a bunch of questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we know enough at this stage to answer that question, Em, because we don't really know all of the specifics uh, of the Collingwood inquiry. What we do know is that Collingwood has said that they're referring uh, Lumumba's allegations to a club integrity matter. The integrity committee was established in 2019 and consists of board members and members of the executive and apparently they're seeking external and independent expertise in order to assist them. You know, I've seen these kinds of internal inquiries, even those that involve, that bring in external consultants into an organisation quite a few times in my work as a lawyer, particularly where you have allegations of, say, sexual harassment within a workplace or bullying or other forms of discrimination 
discrimination. What, what troubles me about those processes generally, not the Collingwood one in particular, because we don't know exactly yet how it's going to play out, but generally in my experience, they can be quite problematic if it's the organisation itself setting the terms of the inquiry. Understandably, people who have experienced victimisation or vilification within workplaces are often reluctant to participate in those internal inquiries because they don't have confidence in them. I must say, and I said this to you all the other night when it was announced, that if I was Lumumba or if I were advising Lumumba, I would be reluctant to participate in that inquiry for a few reasons. One is because, as I said, so much depends on the terms of reference and the process by which they go, they're going to undertake that inquiry. And so if he participates, there is that air of legitimacy potentially to the to the investigation. But by the same token, if he if he says, well, look, because of all of that, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure of the process, I'm not willing to participate, then if they go ahead with the inquiry in his absence, they may well find that the allegations are not proven because they don't have his evidence. And and I can imagine a situation where members of the public will then say, well, will then turn around and say, well, you can't complain now, Lumumba, because you didn't participate. And if you wanted to um, have your grievances aired and, and so on, you should have been part of it. I feel like this is a situation where Lumumba will be damned if he does participate and damned if he doesn't. That troubles me a lot. I think, you know, obviously I can't speak for Lumumba and what he would like, you know, whether he wants an, an independent external investigation of some kind or whatever else it might be. I don't know. As I said, in my experience, those kinds of internal inquiries can be really difficult to navigate. And uh, I think for good reason, people often just say, I can't be part of it. What I don't understand about what Collingwood have come out and said is that it's basically framing them as the arbiters of whether whether racism occurred or not, and that just doesn't make sense to me. I- it's interesting. I think since the time that Heretier first made his claims that he had been racially vilified at his time at Collingwood to now, which has been a number of years, I believe we have learnt a lot about victims' experiences and I believe that we have learnt a lot through the testimony and experience of Christine Blasey Ford who was talking about when she had been sexually assaulted and what we learnt from her was that victims don't remember the day, the date, all of the facts necessarily the way that we demand that they relive them for us to be able to judge them and judge their experience. And I wonder whether our learning about victims' experiences might change this outcome. I hope that that it does give people a, a wider breadth of understanding of why back a couple of years ago when we were demanding that Heretia name names and give dates and times why that was not possible for him in what was a really traumatic experience. It also raises the the story of Joel Wilkinson, who has spoken out this week. He tweeted out a piece that he'd written. So Joel Wilkinson joined the Gold Coast Suns in 2011 as a 19-year-old. So he was a baby. He was so young. And he has spoken in the past about his experience of racism through the club, through fans, through a whole range of of areas that he had contact with as a player. And in 2018, he made a formal complaint against the AFL with the Australian Human Rights Commission. At some point, he decided to stop with his legal case. Yeah. And what I have read, actually, which I think is very important, he says that part of the reason he decided to stop that process is because there was a demand on the other side that... uh, he signed a non-disclosure agreement mm. and he was not willing to do so. Uh, we've had a lot of conversations as a society in, in the last few years about non-disclosure agreements within the context of people like Christine Blasey Ford that you mentioned earlier, M, and other sexual assault victims. 
And what is interesting, just as a quick side note, is that a lot of lawyers, uh, particularly in the United States, United States, have now said that they refuse to participate in legal proceedings mm-hmm. where their client demands a non-disclosure agreement because they believe it is unethical. I just flagged that there mm-hmm. because I think it's a, an interesting mm-hmm. question in this context. Well, one of the interesting points that Joel raised in, in the piece that he wrote, and I'm going to quote here, when incidents were made public, I was coerced to follow their protocol. They weaponized their PR departments and media to control the narrative and to silence and erase my voice and the truth. And I think we can learn something from what he's saying there. We need to think very carefully about what structures in organisations work for the organisation as opposed to the individual. This might be naive, but I just don't understand what is so wrong with saying we were wrong. (laughs) At the end of the day, that's what Haritia is asking for. He wants an apology and for the acknowledgement that they were wrong. And is the fear that he would then sue them if they said we did do that? You know, is is that the fear? Oh, look, it could be. I don't know. I mean, I think we need to hear more from Collingwood on that. And that's why, I mean, we talked about this last week and I'll just return to it because I think it's important. I mean, that there, there just haven't been enough questions asked of Collingwood mm. by uh, by reporters, by journalists. That that These are the questions that I think need to be asked. Moving on, last week we did ask some questions. We pleaded with broadcast bosses, network heads and station managers to open the commentary box door or at least show us the pathways for a more diverse media. Kate, you have a little update on that? I do. Um, Well, what was really interesting and valuable is that this opened up an opportunity for us to have a conversation with our own organisation, with the ABC, about the work that's being done here to to diversify voices and and to do a better job. That was a really interesting conversation that we had and I think one of the, the lessons for, for us, I think, has been that even raising those questions about our own organisation internally enabled us to have a conversation and there might be others that can do uh, the same thing within their institutions or organisations. And it was great, actually, on that note, to see Tony Armstrong in the commentary box last weekend. Uh, I'd, I'd love to see more of that. And, um, and yeah, let's watch this space. Well, one other little update is that Channel 9 and Sam Newman have parted ways. You know, I feel like it's becoming untenable for media organisations to provide a platform for people with particular views. We saw an announcement yesterday that the AFLW will go ahead in 2021 as planned, which was a bit of a woohoo moment out of the fog of COVID to have this shining beacon of our beautiful AFLW competition. <laughs> it's a bit exciting. It felt like some good news, yeah? It did, and it felt it was lovely to hear the commission say that um, AFLW is a significant growth area for the game and it's so important that it's able to continue to thrive. So we'll see the competition go ahead pretty much unchanged. Um, nine weeks home and away, three weeks finals, significantly player payments and soft cap will be maintained as per the previous agreements. And another very exciting news in women's sport, Friday morning, 2am our time, there will be an announcement about whether or not Australia and New Zealand are the winners of the FIFA Women's World Cup bid. There's only two bids still in contention and and ours with Jacinda is um, <laughs> team... Friend of the pod. Friend, friend of, of the pod. Friend of the Jacinda pod. Ardern. The impact of that, if that is to come to Australia and New Zealand, the impact and the way in which that will change the neural pathways for women and girls and boys and men and the way that we can feel, actually feel the excitement of a of women's sport at that grander scale will be an 
absolute game changer and we need to get our diaries out and start planning if we are successful, Rana. I wonder if it'll then have an impact on female sports journalists. Surely it's just going to, everybody's going to be knocking on the door saying... Well, we hope so. And if then if there's anything that we've learned from the conversations that we had this week, if you are interested, knock on the door. Knock on the door. I think it's time we got our silly on. Let's hear from Felicity with Googling. It's a well-known physical shortcoming of the modern footballer to have no left foot, or in some instances, no right foot. The imagery is, of course, mind-boggling, but we know what critics are trying to say. Kicking or handballing with equal talent from both sides of your body is a skill you should learn if you want to play at the highest level. And attempting to take the field missing one of your feet will probably not make you a legend of the game. Well, over the years, plenty of notable players really mastered skills on both feet, including Dustin Martin, Sam Mitchell, and of course, Peter Dacos. Nathan Buckley is another footballer always raised as an example of someone with dual talent, although he always declined the accolade, as although he could roost the ball more than 60 metres on his right, he could only make it about 50 on his left. But are these players considered truly ambidextrous? Actual ambidextrous people only make up about 1% of the population. People who have no dominant side, but have trained themselves later in life to use both, however, appear more commonly, at a rate of about 1 in 100. So where does true ambidexterity come from? Well, science has demonstrated that at birth, the brain of a left-hander is very similar to the brain of a truly ambidextrous person. This has led evolutionary researchers to conclude that perhaps both groups started out as natural lefties and over the years acquired ambidexterity as a survival skill. The history of stigma against left-handers is long and well-known, with medieval and biblical references associating left-handedness with witchcraft and demons. In fact, the word sinister comes from the Latin word sinistra, which originally meant left. And even today, either through stigma or perhaps survival necessity in a world largely designed for right-handers, the pressure to try and use the other hand is widely reported from a very young age, leading to the development of dual ability. Well, it's widely considered that the sport that offers the biggest advantage to an ambidextrous player is snooker, with the ability to switch the cue to either hand, effectively extending your reach and increasing your chances of getting out of a tight spot. And it's not just an advantage, but an actual requirement if you happen to be a natural lefty and want to play polo in the US, as the rules of polo state that it's exclusively a right-handed game, with the use of the mallet in the left explicitly banned, lest opposing teams find themselves jousting rather than poloing. And any benefit of ambidexterity is erased in Major League Baseball, where ambidextrous players are required to declare which hand they will pitch with before each innings, eradicating the element of surprise. But perhaps the final word on this topic goes to former West Coast Eagles player Glenn Jakovic, who summed up the even greater potential of human evolution when he reportedly announced the reason he could kick with both feet was because he'd trained himself to be amphibious. Rebip. everyone who uh, has reviewed us on iTunes. There was a there was a barrage of them this week and we really appreciate it. But there's been some overwhelming support for the fifth quarter, which is we know that the fifth quarter maths doesn't work out. We know there's only four quarters. But if there were a fifth quarter, it is where we turn our attention to culture and we talk about things not necessarily football related, but it's to get you through this COVID time, things that you might like to watch, listen to. We usually have like a theme song or a breaker, but I don't know if anyone, did anyone? No, I didn't. No, I didn't oh, do I one. can probably jump in with something, Em, but oh. I might just need your help with a bit of air guitar if that's all right. <laughs> Done.
Oh, this ain't the end. We need it again today. Cause fifth chord is here to stay. <laughs> when the footies are fun, suggestions for everyone. Our tales, it never fails. <laughs> You're getting low on something to read. I bet you we got something you need. You wanna be down? Fifth quarter. <laughs> 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 Rockhart says, thank you very much. That was not what I was expecting. Oh, that was not what I was expecting. Hi, for me. You're just Ooh, a surprise brilliant. packet runner, Hussein. I love it. Oh, you just bring it, don't you? Thanksgiving. And also you just sit there so demurely like you're, you're not sitting on like a... Yeah, like a little a, like barracuda. A diamond. <laughs> my spirit animal, yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, who wants to go first? Oh, we've got a theme this week. I thought, you know, it's probably time to go back into our childhood and barracuda is certainly part of mine, weirdly. So I thought this week let's talk about the theme childhood. All right. Well, why don't you dish it up, Katie? You go first. Well, I've been re-watching a lot of films from my childhood from the 1980s, which gives away my age. And I, I tell you what, <laughs> I've been re-watching all the classics, all the big hits. One of the things I've realised watching back films of the 1980s is that there's some serious variation on quality. Some of them are really bad <laughs> when you <laughs> when you rewatch them. They, they're cringeworthy, but some really stand the test of time. Mm. So, for example, we re-watched E.T the other week and I tell you what that is like a perfect film still a perfect film I've never seen it <laughs> what <laughs> Emma Race has I left the podcast know, so I was sorry. actually speechless just I know you were I'll be, um, I don't know, I can't, I'm not sure if I can ever speak to you again. Know, what are you doing? Weird. Go home it's, and watch it today. It's a weird gap in my back catalogue. Well, look, go home and watch it today, Em. It's, it's fabulous. One of the things, though, that they did do really well in the 1980s was a montage. Oh. There are so many films that do a great montage. And what I thought I would do was share with you my top three montages from <laughs> 1980s cinema. Yes. Because I've just gotten oh. so much joy oh. out of these recently. So I want to give one vote, first of all, to Rocky. You can go for mm. Rocky 3 or Rocky 4 because essentially both films are just a series of montages yeah. <laughs> packaged together. I don't think Sylvester Stallone wrote any real, there was no real he just script. He ran, <laughs> ran up steps. He ran up steps, he ran down the beach, yeah. him and Apollo Creed ran down the beach, splashed in the water. There's heaps of great montages in Rocky 3 and Rocky 4. So one vote to the Rocky franchise. I watched this on the weekend and I want to give two votes to this montage. Let me see if you can guess what this montage is. Because every time he pulls me near, I just want to cheer. Oh, 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 let's hear it for the boy. Can 
Can I buzz in? Please. Oh, yeah. Footloose. Indeed. So uh, how good is the, that montage? This is the, this is where Kevin Bacon te- teaches Chris Penn how to dance. And I love that Chris Penn, in the space of just sort of two or three minutes, <laughs> goes from being unable to even click in time to the music <laughs> to like the world's greatest dancer. I mean, that's what and a that montage is the can do. Montage. <laughs> exactly. Just She's not sure journey. You won't show me turns. I'm doing all this to save your ass. <laughs> Okay, exactly. as a dirty dancing montage. Okay, go, 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 montage. Go. And three votes to this montage, which I think is the best montage in film history, in what is actually a stinker of a film in hindsight. Can you guess what this is from? So, Karate Kid, In what a, a sequence. It, oh, sweep the leg. Daniel LaRusso. <laughs> Daniel song? LaRusso. Please tell me you've seen that one in my race. Definitely, and I've even seen the remake. It was really good. Yeah, so the original film was a stinker, but that, what oh, I want to say is that sacrilege. I mean, just let me say go back and watch, okay, watch, watch it, okay? Watch There's it. some racially yeah, okay. questionable yeah, okay. content. With you, with you. But that is the best montage in history, in my view. Well, I might, I might follow you up, Katie, because <laughs> on an 80s theme, I just have to say Vale to Joel Schumacher, the yeah. director who sadly passed away this week. Now, he is responsible for a whole swathe, like a whole lot of movies. At the absolute pinnacle is St Elmo's Fire, the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> I'm not going to oh. talk about it today. I'm saving it up for when I have like a whole show that I can dedicate to. Are you going to be our man in motion? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to be. But um, what I want to talk about is another film that kind of gets into, you know, the sort of stuff that I was loving back in the 80s, which is a rom-com. And this is a new rom-com. It's called The Half of It. It's directed by Alice Wu and it is currently showing on Netflix. So it's a riff on the old Cyrano de Bergerac theme. And it centres on Ellie Chu, who is a Chinese-American teenager. Her neighbour, the awkward jock, Paul and Asta Flores, the girl that they both have a crush on. Ellie lives with her dad, who's an engineer, and despite his qualifications, he's stuck with a low-level job for the railway. And Ellie makes money helping him signal the trains, but also writing essays for half of her class. Paul convinces her to write help him write a letter to send to Asta and thus the story begins. So this is a beautiful movie. It doesn't shy away from the racism that Ellie's subjected to and it uses a lot of the tropes of the high school rom-com in a way that's intelligent and awkward and sweet and that's my favourite combination. It's beautifully shot and ultimately it's really a story about friendship and identity. So I just want to finish with a little quote by Kyle Turner who reviewed it in the New York Times and he said, by exploring issues of race and queerness with emotional complexity it treats teenagers with the sophistication they deserve highly recommend oh, five stars that sounds no so... actually maybe four there's some really there's some interesting <laughs> timeline stuff yeah it's no St Elmo's fire it's <laughs> no St Elmo's fire so you know no Billy from the roof just 
let it be on the, some of the timing stuff that doesn't work. I'm going to come to you now, mm. Rana, rom-com, Hussein. <laughs> that is your favourite genre. Oh, that is entirely my wheelhouse. And you just, you were speaking my language then, Lucy, so I'm definitely going to be watching that. I am sticking with the 80s theme as well and recommending Glow on Netflix. Oh. So Glow stands for Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, which was actually a show that first aired in 1986, which is when I was born. So this fits entirely with our theme today, but also features a lot of 80s montage sequences. <laughs> Women best. in leotards. High cut leotards, big hair. The production values of this show is ama- are amazing, but it also kind of delves into post 70s feminism and racism. It's really, it's a really diverse cast. It's kind of strange in that you're never quite sure whether it's critiquing some of those problematic issues or if it's kind of just reframing it. So I never really feel confident about each episode, but I have to say the second season gets a lot better in terms of that. But it's just a joy to watch. It's women wrestling and being very... If you love AFLW, I feel like you'll love Glow. I completely agree. It's empowering in all of the characters. Yeah, they, they all have good character arcs, I suppose, is what I'm saying. But I know what you mean about, I never know whether they're playing too mm. stereotype or they're parodying. 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 Parody. <laughs> or, or if it's satire. <laughs> yes, and I think they, the line is that it's satire, but I'm not. Can't quite convinced about it. Well, I also went for big hair because we're going back to childhood and I watched this on the weekend with my kids. The movie is called A Night on the Town or you may know it as Adventures in Babysitting. It was released under two names. It's pretty much Goonies but in the city and it's an adventure. It's a basically an adventure with a babysitter. The babysitter in question is Elizabeth Shue and we haven't had, I feel like the 80s allowed big hair, big boned, big shouldered women to be our heroes and our love interests and then somehow along the way they all became whippets and everyone got a whole lot littler. But there she is in all of her permed glory with shoulder pads to boot in her mum's wood panelling station wagon, driving these kids around the city. It was made in 1987. The original has been updated, I am pleased to report. There's a homophobic slur that is repeated throughout it and they've updated it so it doesn't exist in the film now as it's um, presented on the platforms that it's on at the moment. It is 10 out of 10, good fun for the whole family and Sarah, who is the smallest child in it, she's basically the scene stealer in every single moment. It stands up. It is hilarious. And I'm going to play you. If you haven't seen it, this should hook you. And it's so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. Babysitting these guys. She got the babysitting blue. Baby, baby, babysitting blue. I've got the Elizabeth Shue also I in know. Karate She's Kid. Daniel LaRusso's oh. girlfriend. That's her that you heard on the audio earlier saying, go Daniel. Totally. And also in Cocktail and yes. also in Leaving Las Vegas and also, little known fact, her brother Andrew Shue oh, was God. quite Billy. a good soccer player and he was Billy in Melrose Place. Yes. That's him. Just to join all the dots like an FBI agent for you. <laughs> what happened to the shoes? I'll dig in and find out next week. Now, Kate, before we get out of here, you've just got an update for us. Yeah, there's some breaking news. So we were talking earlier about the case of Heredia Lumumba and what's happened just in the last few minutes is that two of Lumumba's former Collingwood teammates, which are Chris Dawes and Brent McAffer, have 
come forward and gone on the record for the first time. They've spoken to SBS, uh, supporting Lumumba's allegations of him being racially vilified. So that is a huge development, I think. I should say, of course, that other players have gone on the record in the past. We talked about that last week. So there are now, I think, maybe four or five players who are supporting Lumumba's uh, account. As I said, I think that's a really huge development, important development. Okay, thanks for that update, Kate. Um, That is a rolling story and um, we just, I know that that will land with people and make them feel a lot of things and good luck out there and take care of each other. And let's, if we, if anyone's awake at 2am on Friday morning, um, let's get this party started (laughs) (laughs) with our round ball girlfriends um, from across the ditch. We just want to say thanks very much for all your support and... Go Go Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.